This is a podcast interview with Dr. Dean Radin. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Timothy Schultz. Now, if you want to watch this interview, we will put a link to the YouTube channel for this podcast, Lottery Dreams and Fortune, below. But without further ado, let's get to the interview. So I'm here with Dr. Dean Radin, who is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He is the author of several books, including Real Magic, Supernormal, Entangled Minds, The Conscious Universe. His story is really, really fascinating. I am so excited to welcome Dean Radin to the program today. Dean, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Sure. For people that are not familiar with your work, uh, how would you describe what you do? Well, I study experiences that people have that suggest that uh, whatever consciousness may be, it's not only uh, locked inside your head. It can do other things as well. And so we're talking about experiences that are labeled psychic, for want of a better term, Things like uh, telephone telepathy, you know what somebody's about to call or somebody's calling and you haven't looked at the phone yet, but you know who it is and you don't have a ringtone that tells you. Uh, And precognitive dreams and, and things like that. But the vast majority of humanity has reported one or more of those kinds of experiences. So what I do is take the tools of science and apply it to understanding, are those experiences real? Or are they illusions or delusions or mistakes of coincidence? All those kinds of things. So that, that's what I do. How, how do you take science and, and study that sort of thing? The joy of science is that it's a collection of methods and methods of analysis, methods of observation, of measurement, and so on. So you could study anything with science, provided that you're clever enough to figure out how to do it. And... Uh, And certainly through the development of the behavioral sciences, we have lots and lots of techniques now to get rid of all of the usual biases that that people have. Our behavior is biased all over the place. So when you devise an experiment to test something like telepathy, you have to make sure that you're not accidentally getting information from one person to the next, and it's not a coincidence, and taking into account human frailties and biases and so on. So you can do that. And you make a very well-controlled experiment, and then you can test the idea. Are people really able to communicate mentally from one place to another without the use of the ordinary senses? So you take the same kind of design for virtually any kind of experience that somebody reports, and you can come up with a, a conclusion at some point saying, well, we think it's real or we think it's not real. From your from your experience and in, in, in your studies, you have found that it, that it is real in, in some cases. Yeah. So I noticed that you changed the word believe into found. And I would characterize it that way as well, because when I started out doing this kind of work 40 years ago already, uh, I didn't know whether these things were real. I Like a lot of people, I would read stories about it and read science fiction and so on where it's sort of common. But I didn't know because I, I didn't have these kinds of experiences. But I figured that... Uh, it is so commonly reported that either it's like part of human fantasy that we want these kinds of powers, or maybe some of it is real. So at some point when I was a teenager, I ran across a book on parapsychology, which was describing how you would use scientific principles to study these things. And that caught my attention. 
because now there's a way that he didn't have to take on somebody's word that these things are real or anything, really. I have a way of testing it myself. So I started doing experiments as a teenager and continued all the way through graduate school and eventually ended up getting full-time jobs to, to do this kind of work. And so people say, well, do you believe in these phenomena? My response is, I believe in evidence. So it's like taking an evidence-based approach to understanding these kinds of exceptional human experiences. And I believe in the data. The data says, yes, these things really are real. What is the most fascinating experiment that proves some of this? In science, we don't talk about proof. The only place you find proof is alcohol and logic. That's where you get proof. What we can talk about is what degree of confidence did you have in the phenomena that you're studying? And even more technical ways, I mean, it starts sounding legalistic after a while on what what you can accept. But So we investigate, we come up with conclusions about the hypotheses that we're looking at, all of that technical stuff. Mm -hmm. And I know that in the vernacular, you'd say, well, we've proven this. The proof sort of happens at the stage when you go out of the laboratory and you make a pragmatic application that's reliable. At that point, you can say, okay, we pretty much have proven that semiconductors work a certain way because we have all this equipment around us that, that is using that. So that's kind of a proof. In the case of, of what is the, the most interesting thing, my, my response is always the same. It's the last experiment I did. Because we don't have a very clear theoretical basis yet for why these things should exist. There are a couple of inklings I could talk about, but we don't really know. So Every time you do an experiment involving precognition or some kind of mind-matter interaction or whatever, it's kind of astonishing that it works because it's, it's telling us we have, we're missing a very important part of the, the nature of reality and our role in it. Like what is the role of consciousness in the physical world? We're at the very beginning stages of understanding what's going on there. Mostly at this point, at an empirical stage, it's like, if we go back a few thousand years and we're looking at stars and trying to figure out what they were, well, there's certain regularities that you can see. Uh, some of them looked a little bit different than others, which we now know as planets. And a lot, you know, astrology came out of all of that, but they, people didn't know what it was. They didn't have telescopes or anything. We're sort of at that stage, a little bit more advanced than that, and that we have very good means of observation that tell us that these things are probably real. But the very next thing that most scientists will then say is, well, precognition, how would you how would you explain such a thing? Well, there's a story that goes along with that. And how would, could you explain that minds could be connected at a distance? Well, we have stories about that too, but they're not well-developed. If you're an empiricist like myself, I don't care that we don't have a theoretical explanation yet. There are all kinds of things that we didn't have explanations for that were still used for a long time, like aspirin. Hmm. I mean, only in the last decade or so did we come up with a theoretical reason for why aspirin does what it does. But for centuries beforehand, it was used. So we're kind of at that stage where uh, Benjamin Franklin being able to produce sparks and having no idea how that's going to turn into supporting the entire world at some point with multi-gigawatt electrical networks but you got to start somewhere. So every experiment is more amazing than the next. Hmm. What I can say is that it took me about five years of, of doing experiments and seriously 
to get to the point where I realized that there was a there there. Because like, again, I didn't have psychic experiences myself and I didn't know anybody who claimed to. So the only way that I could rely on um, what am I going to believe about what's going on here was experiments I had done myself. So I had visited some of the labs that were doing this sort of thing. I was at Bell Laboratories at the time, so I had a lot of resources to, to do experiments. And I started doing it on myself and on my colleagues and eventually convinced myself after a lot of effort that it was real. Usually, by real means statistically significant, usually pretty small effects, but I, but I got them. I got what I was aiming to get. So I figured, okay, I guess this stuff is real. But the next stage, the thing that convinced me that this was worth spending a career on, as opposed to dabbling in it, mm-hmm. was I uh, went to a conference, and this was 91, I think, 1991. I went to a conference and I gave a presentation on some of the research, some of this kind of research I was doing at Bell Labs. And I got approval from my management at Bell Labs to go to the conference and talk about it. Uh, and afterwards, I was approached by people who the rumors were that they were doing this for the U.S. government. And I was invited to join their program. So that was an offer I couldn't refuse because, among other things, at that point, it was a rumor of, that was going on, but now it looked real. But what I didn't know and what was not really known at the point at that time was, yes, there was stuff going on, but it was highly classified. It was top secret and, and beyond. So it took a while to get all the clearances, but then I, I did join that project. That's what really convinced me by seeing, in that case, remote viewers who were extremely successful at what they were able to do, doing operational missions, like missions that were important for law enforcement, for intelligence agencies, and for the military, where there was no other means of getting information. But they were able to do that because they were very talented. So having seen those talented people do that sort of thing, none of them matching the stereotype of Madame Zodiac, by the way, like military people, mm-hmm. uh, that convinced me that if it was possible to have a career where this is what you would be doing to study these kind of things, that's what I wanted to do. And somehow I managed to do that. That is really interesting. And that was the, was that the Stargate program? Stargate was one of the last code words, but yes, mm. it was that, that series of studies with probably a dozen different code words. So with precognition, I mean, I myself have had some dreams about things before they have happened in, in real life, including having a dream about winning a lottery and then it happened a few months later. But how is that sort of thing possible, do you think? So the, the, the uh, standard riff on the possibility of this is that when you look at the equations in physics about almost everything that we know, uh, they're time symmetric or time doesn't even enter into the equation at all. So our best physical understanding of the world says that in principle, at least at a microscopic scale, that there is no time as we experience it. Time is generally thought of as a thermodynamic property enormous number of systems all working together, they will tend to go in one direction, and usually in the direction of entropy, of disorder. And so you start from order and it sort of dissolves and goes into disorder. That is the direction. That's the direction of time as we experience it. We, we only get older. We don't get younger. Unless you're Benjamin Button, and then it goes yeah. the other way. 
<laughs> so, so that says at least at, uh, at some level of reality, what we can think of as a microscopic level, that time is irrelevant, that things can go forward and backwards. The other uh, possibility here is that there's a, uh, a certain time symmetry as a way of thinking about what's going on at the, at the elementary particle world. And a third way is uh, there's a leading edge within physics today that are people studying thermodynamics. And thermodynamics is a statistical law. A statistical law is very different than things that are considered to be causal effects, because it's just, just talking about things that are probabilistic, not, not necessarily causal in a, in a way, something that must happen. And the moment that you're dealing with a probabilistic kind of phenomenon, it can do all kinds of things, including going backwards, or at least apparently going backwards in time. Like the flow of entropy does not necessarily always have to go in one direction. And in fact, if you think about uh, the nature of life, living systems are constantly fighting against decay all the time. So we are a negentropic system. We are taking in energy and organizing ourselves so that we don't fall apart. Eventually we will, but for a long time we don't. So we have examples out there, including things like refrigerators, which if you didn't know about how it was being made, you would say, well, that's, that's impossible. It's going backwards against the thermodynamic arrow of time. Well, it takes energy to do that. It takes a certain degree of work and organization to create a negentropic direction. But in a sense, that is a reversal of, of, the, of the large scale direction of time. So how does precognition work? <clears throat> It's one of those explanations or something that we haven't thought of yet, but um, but it happens. The thing is, we can empirically show that it is possible. Hmm. What we don't know yet for precognition is whether the thing that is perceived must occur the way that it is perceived, or are we perceiving a probabilistic anticipation of what is going to happen? So, in other words, hmm. if you if if you imagine that uh, you will experience something in the future. Can, does your brain or mind correlate in some way or is it entangled with itself in the future? In which case, your future self is having something happen and your present self will feel an echo of it, a pre-echo of that because it is still the same physical structure except that's then and this is now. The reason why that kind of makes sense is because in, when you think about things that are entangled, they are instantaneously connected, not only through space, but also through time. And so if, if you are entangled with yourself through time and your future self has a future experience, you should be able to feel it now. Hmm. It, it, I can guess that the reason why we don't constantly have these kinds of experiences is because it would become confusing in the present. You, you wouldn't know what the present was after a while. And from an evolutionary point of view, if you become confused, the tiger will jump on you and eat you. So we may be selected by evolution to only vaguely get these kinds of experiences. They've been evolved out of it so that we can survive. On the other hand, some people within the tribe could be ex exceptionally good at this. We'd call them shamans. They're the ones who say tomorrow or the game that we want to get is going to be over there. Well, how do you know that? So, well, I don't know, I, I'm feeling it from the future. 
Well, there are individuals, you think not from a personal perspective now, but from a societal perspective. It is very useful to have some people who are extremely psychic. They may not be normal in the sense that because, you know, their, their minds are all over the place, but they provide valuable information to the tribe. The tribe can use that. In fact, in, of course, in indigenous societies, the shamans are extremely important for that reason. In modern day, we don't need it as much, but the phenomena is still there. There's still shamans walking among us, whether they use that term or not. And, and the phenomena are useful for the survival of, of the collective. Historically, people that have had psychic abilities have been persecuted. And is or, that... Or honored, right? If you go back far enough in time, the shaman were honored people in there. They were the leaders, the wise ones who had these exceptional capabilities. Hmm. The same goes back also for the mystery schools. I mean, there's still mystery schools today, but mostly we know about them from the ancient Greeks and so on of, of having schools mm -hmm. that were designed to select and train people who had these special skills. It's only actually in the modern, relatively modern era for two reasons that people are persecuted. One was the, the rise of organized religion, in particular the Catholic Church. Catholicism did not like, they, they fully accepted these capabilities, but they didn't want people who were challenging the authority of the church. So that's why there was a lot of persecution. Today, it's still that way. There are still a lot of people who are frightened about these kinds of phenomena. They would call them demonic. The Catholic catechism makes it very clear that don't mess with this stuff because you shall not. But from the other direction, we have science. So people who are scientists uh, will fall into a certain worldview after a while. It's reductive materialism. It's extremely effective as a way of understanding the world. It does not explain everything. And among the things it doesn't explain very well are these kinds of phenomena. So if somebody comes along and said, I can do something with my mind that from a distance, hmm. from a science perspective, you say, that's ridiculous. We don't know anything in science that would allow the mind to do that. What is not usually being said, though, is that we don't actually understand the nature of consciousness at all. So science doesn't really have much to say about that. So to say that something is impossible, but we don't actually understand the nature of that phenomenon is ridiculous, basically. Hmm. So why is there persecution? It's all of those plus that if you start thinking about uh, something even as simple as telepathy, for many people would be quite frightened about the idea that somebody could know your innermost thoughts. And then you think about the consequences of what would it be like if society had no secrets? Politics would be extremely different. The whole law enforcement system would be extremely different. Business would be extremely different. So the whole modern society is built on the idea that there are secrets. And it's used powerfully as a way of, of almost weaponizing information. So when somebody comes along and says, well, I know what you're thinking about. I know your whole, I can see right through you. That's frightening for virtually everyone because most people have things going on in their heads or in their lives that they just don't want anybody to know about. So the notion of privacy would disappear. And that's a challenge that would frighten most people. And so add on to that, uh, I can make things happen at a distance with my mind, mind matter interaction effects. 
And now you're saying, oh, you mean like voodoo is real? Somebody doesn't like you and you're not going to feel so good afterwards or worse? Yeah, that's also true. Well, that's also frightening. So when you add up all of the reasons for why there's a certain pressure for these things not to exist and, and to basically suppress it, there's a lot of reasons. And if you can affect something from a distance with your with your mind, with your energy, with your consciousness, people pray all the time and they meditate and visualize, but how is that possible? So the true answer is we don't know. The hand-waving answer is that after the development of quantum mechanics, uh, there's this thing called the quantum measurement problem, which is not yet resolved. And it has to do with the idea that if, if you observe a quantum system, the system will respond to the observation, that there's an observer effect. Well, there are lots of, of explanations offered as to what that might be. Some people say there is that that doesn't even exist. There is no observer effect. And there's a lot of other explanations that say, yeah, there is. There's something called the quantum Zeno effect, which is quite well known and has to do with observation. So there's a, a, a small door opening, a, like a little crack within modern physics that says there's something peculiar about the nature of observation, which means consciousness. Uh, that is, that causes the potential world to turn into the world as we experience it. The potential world as described by quantum mechanics becomes the actual world that we experience on a daily basis. What causes that transition? Some have said, including many of the founders of quantum mechanics, it has something to do with consciousness. That in order to manifest the phys physical world as we experience it, you need something non-physical to intervene. Because if it's purely physical that's intervening with the physical world, from a quantum perspective, it remains quantum. It remains a potential. It never collapses into the world as we experience it. So that's that's the hand-waving explanation that we have at this point, because otherwise we we don't have a good explanation. So a lot of people listening or watching to this podcast are very much into or interested in manifestation. First of all, is it possible to manifest something into your life using your consciousness, and, and how is that possible? Visualizing something, and then it, it comes to be. Well, so two ways of thinking about it. One is purely psychological. So your your attitude will shape how you experience the world. And your desires also shape how you perceive the world. So if you focus and spend a lot of time thinking about and working on a particular kind of outcome that you want, that is much more likely to occur, simply because you're putting your attention on it. The less conventional way of thinking about it is that it requires a, a slightly different twist on our worldview. So the modern, especially scientific worldview, is, as, as I said, is reductive materialism, which says that everything is made out of matter and energy. That's the end of the story. It, it doesn't even say anything about consciousness, even though that's the only thing that we actually know personally. So reductive materialism does not work very well in describing how, how these things work. The flip side of materialism is idealism. It's, it's the philosophy that says everything starts with consciousness and the physical world emerges from that. And so from that perspective, suddenly all of these strange psychic and mystical tales are actually easy to understand because they, they're saying that 
consciousness come is primary before the physical world. So if you want something to occur in the physical world, it starts in consciousness and then it emerges. Exactly how it emerges, we don't know yet, because that as a, as a scientific area of study, this is only the very beginning stages. So we can see effects in the laboratory. Uh, we, when we usually think about manifestation, we're thinking about large scale real life things, like I want to win the lottery. In the laboratory, we use much more constrained targets like, uh, like bacteria in vitro or the structure of water or behavior of photons, things that we have some control over. Uh, but we can tell them because we see effects in those kinds of systems that in principle, when you tightly focus on a particular kind of outcome that you want, the probability of that occurring increases. It's not a guarantee by any means. And if the probability, if the initial probability, like I want to win a Powerball lottery that has one in 300 million chance to win. By putting your focus on that, you may be able to decrease the probabilities from one in 300 million to one in a million, which is amazing. It's still one in a million. It's not gonna happen very often. By contrast, if you say, uh, I'm gonna flip a coin and I want it to land heads more often than tails. Well, now you have a 50-50 chance. And so if you tweak that just a little bit over the long run, you're likely to actually see, to get the result that you wanted to get, simply because of the, it's a probabilistic argument. So I think, I, I do believe that uh, our, our focus, our desires do push probabilities around. A lot of the idea of what's going to happen depends on how clear the desire is. And I have a, well, I used to. I moved my, my office around so I don't have easy access to this thing right now, but I'll, I'll describe what I meant yeah. and what I mean. Hmm. So if you want something to happen that requires that a whole bunch of other people do something, the probabilities go way down very quickly because now you're talking about manipulating people with free will who need to do something that eventually will end up helping you in some way. So it's possible. I mean, the book of Grimoire, the the... Uh, the book of spells, of which there are many, they're all based on that. Almost all of them is that I, I want somebody to do something. I, I want power or control in some way, often involving other people. It's possible, but as I said, you're you're now working against other people who have their own desires. And so there's all kinds of clashing going on. It's much more difficult. Whereas if you, uh, you want something to happen that is that that can happen, first of all, that would not require other people to be involved in it, especially not to override what their free will may be, and it's more likely to happen. So the lottery is a good example. The lottery presumably is there are no people involved, there's, there's something random happening. And in the laboratory, most of what we use as targets are random physical systems for that very reason that they don't have their own internal will where they want something to happen. So when the ball falls in a lottery, it presumably doesn't care. It just happens. So can we influence that? I think, yeah, we can. So the story I was going to say is a real life uh, manifestation would be, I want a gold plated Mercedes to show up on my driveway. That's what I want. And so I, I said, well, that you know, it could happen except that that has to come from somewhere. 
somebody has to bring it there, somebody has to give it to you or something. There's a whole series of things that have to happen. So the probability is very low. So you can tweak it, but you still probably won't get it because you won't be able to push the probabilities up to the point where it's 100% in your favor. So I told this story and then uh, somebody who watched that interview uh, turned out to be a witch. Hmm. A lot of witches like this stuff, warlocks, hmm. neo-pagans, that sort of thing. Hmm. So uh, she sent me a gold-plated Mercedes, but it's this big. It's a little tiny car, oh. that has, but it has wheels that move pretty, pretty and doors tiny. that open. Yeah. yeah, they're tiny, but it's a Mercedes, and it was, mm-hmm. it was colored gold. It wasn't gold-plated, but it was a colored gold. And she said they sent it as a reminder that when you have the manifestation, it has to be crystal clear all the way up and down the line. Because I did get a gold-plated Mercedes, and then I put it in my driveway. You know, a tiny little thing. You can just yeah. stick it there. Oh, I got my wish. Oops, I forgot to say that it's something that's a real car that I could drive and that it actually belongs to me. Like I want it somehow. You know, you have to fill in all of the rest because otherwise you can get your wish. But as many parables say, there's always unintended, unintended consequences if you're not really clear on what it is that you want. Hmm. So the unintended consequences in this case was, yeah, I have a gold plated Mercedes. It just happens to be this big. That's that's really interesting. And I've I've interviewed a couple a few lottery winners that are very much into manifestation and you know, they've written down the exact amounts and then they've they've won that those exact amounts. And it's so you're saying that theoretically the science shows that that is possible, the correlation of the fact that they manifested and believed and visualized that and felt that this was going to happen and then it happened. Did yeah. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's coincidence. See, that the reason why I, I will fall back into the laboratory work is because we know from that that is, in principle, it is possible. How it actually turns out in the real world becomes very complicated because it becomes a combination of, it could be coincidence, somebody's going to win. It could be related to this, it could be related to that. And in addition, in the real world, it might be a mind-matter interaction effect, a manifestation causing something. It may be precognition. Like if I go to this store at this time and buy this ticket at this place, that's the one. So I'm not making anything happening. I'm precognizing what I need to do in order to make it happen. So it becomes complicated to, to think of all of the paths that would, that would be necessary to, to make the thought of winning a lottery turn into the actuality of it. So in a laboratory, we don't usually study it in that way because we were trying to reduce complexity, mm-hmm. not increase it. So maybe in the real world, I think actually in the real world, these effects are stronger, a lot stronger than what we see in the laboratory because we have so many different ways of having things happen, hmm. which we don't do in the lab. Along along with, with this, what would you say that that luck is when you when you flip a coin is it there is dumb luck and there is smart luck so dumb luck is the thing just happens like uh, maybe nobody cares or nobody's watching or something smart luck you can think of as a way of of manifesting what you want it is it is always going to have dumb luck underneath it there's all kinds of things that are just chance Uh, but can you influence how the chance is going if you can do it even to a very small degree, then it becomes smart luck. And in other words, a kind of a manifestation. So in, in your case, 
Did did you you felt that you manifested the lottery win? I I don't necessarily know. I I just I had this really I was feeling a little down on my luck this particular day and f- specifically having to do with where I was at financially and I was seeking inspiration from what I believe to be God or the universe, you know, the higher power that I just believe that we're all connected to and and I went into this meditative sleeping state almost were you know a vibrational type of state and then I felt as if it it had already happened mm-hmm. and it was so real that it convinced me that it's going to happen because I had had other dreams not about the lottery but about other things that were similar in nature that came true so then I started playing more consistently and, and believed that it was going to happen and started telling people that I was going to win and and then it happened so it was very surreal when it did so I don't mm. I don't no, exactly. Other than I have had other dreams that have come true. So yeah. So your description is very similar to magical practices, right? You and also to the whole uh, the the whole tradition of manifestation is that you accept it as though it is already there. It's already happened, and so now you just have to wait for the rest of the world to catch up to when the thing actually unfolds. But the moment that you have the initial thought. It is putting things in motion. And the more you spend, the more time, especially in a state of Gnostic kind of state, as you were describing, like kind of a meditative state, mm-hmm. that's where the, the power of these kinds of things seem to come from. It bubbles up somehow from the unconscious. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So to me, it sounds like, yeah, that's, that's a kind of a manifestation. Uh, a colleague, not a colleague, but a, a friend of a friend of mine, mm-hmm says that when when he's running out of money, he goes to the local casino and and plays slot machines and waits until he feels that a slot machine is ready to pay. And he's won millions that way, usually in small small batches, like 10,000 or 20,000 on a slot machine. And I said, well, that's that's ridiculous. You can't do that, even though I study this stuff. And so my friend said, well, do you want to see the receipts from the casino? Yeah. Tishbury brought a, a stack of receipts like this, 10,000, 20,000, 15,000, just on and on and on and on. So, and he was not doing it where he was forcing the machine. He was waiting for the machine to say, okay, now do it. So, I mean, another example of he wanted something, but he wasn't forcing it. He was like like going with the flow and figuring out the right time and place to be. That That is very, very interesting. So I, I asked my friend, how does he not get thrown out of all these casinos? Hmm. Well, th- these were Indian casinos, and he made a very uh, a strict policy to, after he won big in one of them, to go to another one. And he would cycle through them. There were enough of them in the vicinity in California that he was able to go visit them. So he'd only show up like once every six months or so. Hmm. And over the years, he had got a lot of, he, he won basically almost every time he went. Wow. That's that's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, we know in principle what he was doing, but he mm-hmm. must have some special talent as well. Mm-hmm. I read something about people directing their energy towards random number generators and being able to affect those. And also something right before 9-11, for example, random number generators, correct me if I'm wrong, but they... they 
started not being as random before before it happened and so is first of all is that true to your knowledge and how is that sort of thing possible well random number generators have have been used as targets for my matter interaction studies since about the 1960s and and it's used because uh, you you want a system which in which the normal behavior of that system is very well understood say clipping coins or, or creating random strings of bits. So the statistics are well understood, pretty simple. And so if your mind is able to push probabilities around, you would see it pretty quickly. Maybe not quickly, but you would eventually see the results as a shift in the probabilities in a direction that you're, you're aiming for. So there have been many, many experiments like that. Uh, all the way back in 1989, a colleague and I wrote a meta-analysis of all of those studies. And at that time, there were already 800 studies using this kind of design. And it was very clear that, yeah, we somehow mind is able to push around probabilities. So those experiments, and this is still going on with, with random number generators of very many different designs. From after working on that for a long time, generally is one person in the laboratory with one of these devices. And you'd get some sort of feedback from the device through a computer screen or something that said, make the line go up while you're forcing or you're mentally concentrating. And that would be reflected by a change in the statistics of the random generator, either too many one bits versus zero bits or some change in the variance or some something happened that, that would, you were trying to get. So in the process of doing that, the, uh, the researchers, it was primarily Roger Nelson at Princeton University, he got the idea of uh, why don't we put a random number generator uh, that is the explicit target, but we put one next to it that people don't even know about because it's hidden. And we can see then, can you see a causal effect because you can target this one and the other one's behaving by, by chance. Well, it turned out that it doesn't quite work that way. There's almost like a field effect that's happening because if you're focusing on that one, the hidden one also sometimes changes. It's no longer behaving by chance. So almost like your, your focusing is creating some kind of field. So we got the idea, well, maybe intention is part of it. That's where manifestation is you want. But in order to want something, you have to direct your attention toward it. So you can separate attention and intention. So the question then became, what if we had a whole bunch of random number generators just going all the time and we had large scale events in the world where millions or hundreds of millions of people were paying attention to the same thing at the same time. So we have this large scale attention, not intention, but attention to something, usually live TV. What, what would happen to the randomness? Well, to make a long story short, after 15 years of experiments and 500 events, it's very clear that the random generators were no longer behaving quite as randomly during these large scale events. And statistically speaking, it's a seven sigma result. That's equivalent to odds against chance of three trillion to one. So we have very high confidence that during the 500 events, large scale events like 9-11, mm -hmm. that were chosen over a 15 year period, that the, the, the generators were not random. So in their, their models as to why we think something like that could happen. Um, hmm. It's not reductive materialism anymore because it's very difficult to understand why that would occur. It's uh, one of the possibilities is the philosophy of idealism, 
where consciousness is everything. Another possibility is a philosophy called dual aspect monism, which says the physical world is what it is. It has certain regularities and laws to it, but there's also a mental world out there. So we have two things out there, which sounds like dualism, but it's not dualism because both of these things are considered to be part of something else. And so Carl Jung used the term unus mundus, which means one world. It's the thing from which the physical world arises and the mental world arises. And because they're arising out of the same source, they're very tightly correlated with each other. So the metaphor is two sides of the same coin. Reality is the coin. One side is mine, one side is matter. If one side changes to a little degree, the other one has to change because they're all part of the same thing. So when millions of minds suddenly become coherent, then a random system must also become coherent. And that's what we detect statistically. The randomness goes away a little bit. So the other thing we found was that in some cases, 9-11 was one case, some earthquakes as well, you begin to see a deviation from randomness starting usually hours before the event happens. And so we figured, well, that would require something like a, a feeling, a, a precognitive feeling of millions of people that were feeling something is about to occur. And this would be unconscious because they had no idea that something was about to happen. So there is an entire line of, of research called presentiment research, which looks at unconscious precognitive responses to things that are about to unfold. And we, so we know that that's real. A lot of studies have shown that. So it kind of suggests that all of us all of the time at an unconscious level are feeling the future. And if the future is something that we don't particularly like, we physiologically begin to change beforehand. It kind of makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. If, if you feel that in five minutes, a tiger's going to jump on you, all of your senses should suddenly be going high alert to try to avoid that. Uh, and so this seems to be just happening on a very large scale. And that's why we sometimes would see for these big events that something is beginning to change in randomness even before the event unfolds. And in that sense, we are all connected. The two ways of thinking about it. One is that we, we are all connected not only with ourselves, but with everything. Everything is interconnected. And so from a, again, from a quantum perspective, given that entanglement is won the Nobel Prize this year, we know that it's real. From that perspective, yeah, everything is entangled all the time to various degrees. It can look like a classical system, but underneath it all, it's still things or particles and stuff that are gonna be entangled. So a case can be made that we live in a fully holistic reality where everything is entangled. We just only notice it occasionally, but that's the way things are. We are running kind of short on time here, but before I go any further, where can people find your, your books and, and your website and, and find more, more information on your work? Well, so my personal website is deanradin.com, and I, I mentioned books there, and they, they can be found wherever books are sold. Where I work is the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is noetic.org. So that's that's me and the rest of our science team. So I've been at at IONS, as we call it, Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, for 21 years now. Uh, so then that's that's been quite a lot of fun. I'm also chairman of a genetic engineering 
company. So, uh, so I have two hats that I wear now. One is I'm doing more or less full-time research on various kinds of psychic effects. But I'm also part of this company that's developing ways of treating mental health problems using genetic engineering of the brain itself. And the reason is that a lot of things, and we're focusing at this point on chronic anxiety and depression, they have brain components to them. So it's a little bit odd here in that the, the focus of my research for many years has been non-local consciousness, the nature of consciousness and its non-local components, which means it is partially brain-oriented, but not completely. On the other hand, reductive materialism, as I said before, is really, really good as a way of thinking about how certain things work. So a lot is known about the brain, and there's a strong correlation then between the way that certain neurochemicals are in your brain, the way that certain neurons behave, and whether you have anxiety and depression and OCD and ADHD, and you, you list the whole realm of psychiatric problems. So the company that I co-founded was to, to use modern tools of genetic engineering to provide a new way of treating especially not mild cases of anxiety or mild depression, but really serious cases, because in both cases, it can be debilitating. Somebody is prone to panic attacks or they're severely depressed, that's really bad. So uh, there are a whole range of different kinds of drugs that are already developed for these things, but a lot of people don't respond to them or they have really bad side effects. So we're making a new kind of treatment uh, which is, at this point, uh, the closest similarity would be the mRNA vaccines, for example. There are genetic ways of manipulating things. Mm -hmm. This would be a temporary fix to uh, what's going on in your brain. And we already know through a series of experiments, we start with mice, that it works. And more importantly, it's non-invasive. So when you think about uh, genetic engineering today for treatment of all kinds of things, rare diseases and sickle cell and Parkinson's and so on, most of them involve either a six-inch needle directly into your brain, which most people would not like, uh, or uh, intravenous, which means it goes all the way throughout your body, or directly injected into your cerebral spinal fluid, which is not fun either. The, the, the methods do seem to work. Like in some cases, a single shot will cure a problem, which is amazing. Wow. Um, our method is non-invasive, so it doesn't involve injections, needles, intravenous, or anything like that, uh, and it still works. Yeah, so two hats, the psychic hat, the genetic engineering hat. Mm. Well, that's incredible. That's that's. We will put a link to, to your website and your books as well below this, below this interview. Uh, Dean, is there anything else that you wanted to say today that, that I don't know enough to ask or that you just wanted to say? I get a lot of requests from people in college and even younger than that. Uh, they find this stuff fascinating. They want to have a career doing it. How do they do that? And so the usual advice I would say is uh, learn everything because the study of consciousness requires that you actually know everything. Well, that's impossible. So you have to focus on something. But so it is useful for students to learn as much as you can about neuroscience to learn as much as you can about experimental psychology, perception, and cognition, and about physics. Well, to know about physics, you need to know about mathematics. So you either know all of it, you're, you're good in all of those, or you're focused on one and get really good at that. 
And then you demonstrate that you're competent in that. And then you start doing these kinds of experiments on the side because you don't want to scare people. And then you will eventually uh, meet other people in the field. There's approximately 150 people like myself around the world who are doing this sort of thing. Uh, and occasionally a paying job will come along. Usually you have to start as an intern that's not paying or something. But if you're really competent and, and really clever about what you're doing in this domain, you'll get the attention of people who, uh, who, who will have the possibility of creating a job. So there is no career track in any conventional sense. This is not part of mainstream science yet. It will be at some point. Um, but that's, so that's the advice. Yeah, and you are on the, the cutting edge of, of all of this stuff. As a, as a four-year-old, I was reading that you described, when someone asked you what you wanted to do with your life, it was, you, you, described, it, you described yourself as being jet-propelled. So, I wanted to be jet propelled, yeah. So, and and so you you have done that in in life. But for people that are watching this, what advice would you give to them to pursue their dreams? Well, as Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. Find out what your passion is about, and do that. And and of course depending on what it is. You don't want to do something that's going to harm other people or property or anything like that. But if you find something that you're really jazzed about, oftentimes you could make that your living. It may take some work to figure out how to do that. But if you can follow your bliss, you'll never work a day in your life. So I get paid for doing what I want to do. There's nothing better than that. Well, that sounds like excellent advice. Is, is there any, anything else you wanted to say today? I, on my uh, website, my, the deanraden.com website, there is a place where you can contact me. So I get emails all the time from people. So if somebody has a question that I haven't addressed here, I'll be happy to answer it. Uh, if you do send something, try not to send a 500-page paper. I don't have time to read that. I mean, I get so much email like most people do today that I, you know, I'm lucky to spend less than two hours a day on email. But if it's something short and sweet, I'll be happy to answer it. That's completely understandable and, and very nice of you. Well, Dr. Dean Radin, it's, it was a privilege and an honor to, to meet and interview you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So that was my interview with Dean Radin. Thank you so much for listening. Now, if you want to watch this interview in its entirety or any other interview on this podcast, we will put a link to the YouTube page for this podcast below. You're going to want to check that out. But as always, thank you so much for listening and thank you for your support.